Well, back when I was a uh, youth pastor at a, um, like a big polish and shine department store church, um, Easter, uh, <laughs> Easter was like a day on the calendar and it was a big deal uh, because everything sort of flowed towards that. And then usually what would happen is um, after Easter Sunday, the church would move on very quickly uh, to other things, you know. And so Easter was more of an on-ramp to a new thing uh, that the church was doing. And I just remember being a part of that. But when you take a look at like church tradition and the calendar that the church follows, Easter, as you probably know by now, is not a day, but a season. Um, To get really technical, every Sunday is kind of a mini Easter uh, as the way the church views it. But the season of Easter is 50 days. Uh, Lent is only 40 days. So it's kind of beautiful that the calendar itself tips in the direction of resurrection and not penance and lament. Um, And I think what's interesting here is that the church is given this time, these weeks, these seven weeks, to reflect on the question that we've been reflecting on each and every Sunday this season, which is, what does it mean to be a resurrection people? Like, that's the Easter question. Now, the question doesn't go away when we end today. Today's the final Sunday of the Easter season. Thanks for being here. Um, That's a question that we are always thinking about and processing. What does it mean to be an Easter people, to be a resurrection uh, people? And so uh, that's what we've been doing. And our, our, one of the main readings for us, or our main readings for this season, have been from the New Testament letter called First Peter, which you just heard read uh, a second ago, a letter that is honestly fashioned around that very question of what it means to be a resurrection people. Now that letter was written to particular people in a particular set of places and in a very particular time. And what we know about the recipients of the letter and the history of that day, is that these people were in crisis, uh, socially and spiritually in crisis. And the words of Peter are meant to encourage and to offer some sense of hope. And we too can find a place in our lives for the things uh, that Peter has said in his letter, which is why it's in our Bible. You know, when they chose things to put in the Bible, they were like, well, this seems helpful. So this, this is why we have it. And in the middle of our reading are perhaps the most known bars in the whole letter, which are these words here, and I'll read them again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. And it may be the best part. Cast all your anxiety on him because he what? Cares for you. These, by far, across the entire letter, they rise to the top as something we've heard before or we need to hear. And I want to break this down uh, for us today as a church family. And again, this is written to a people in crisis. So maybe you can relate. Um, And this passage also is a very, it's a truncated version of the Easter story. So I want to unpack this today. A couple things to see. Uh, I had three points last week, and guess what? I have three this week. I'm not trying this out. I'm just saying it just worked out this way. Uh, But the first thing here is this, that Peter tells his readers, he tells them to humble themselves under what he calls the mighty hand of God. So humility is the first thing that we see in the text. 
And it is the main descriptor here, this humble self. Now, the opposite, of course, is the exalted self, the the self-made, raised-up self, the person of self-praise, the practice of um, (laughs) what I would say is like over-investment, over-indexing of my possibilities, believing maybe a little too much in myself, right? You ever been there? No? Okay. (laughs) Great. Point two. Uh, or maybe this is more relevant now, I don't know. But it, it's, it's a very simple statement. Humble yourselves, a life of humility. Um, it is interesting in the, the, the world in which you live, and I don't think this is new. We just have more ways to advertise these such things. But a couple of Saturdays ago, uh, we took our daughter to, uh, she got invited to this like regional district honors band thing, which was six uh, so we dropped her off at 7.30, and she is a joy at 7.30 uh, in the morning. We dropped her off at Roswell High School, which is way outside my, like, well, I, what I call the breathable zone for me. Like, I'm, out, I'm way outside the perimeter here. Um, so we drop her off at Roswell High School, and I'm like, aren't there, like, outlet malls way up here in the mountains somewhere? And, <laughs> and Mickey was like, yeah, there's the ones in the North Georgia outlets. I was like, let's just do it. We've got all this time before we come back for the show. Uh, and so we went up to the outlet malls and, um, and you know, looked around at, you know, it's amazing what still is a store. I was really impressed by like, uh, I don't even know how to say it, but the Aeropostale, I don't know, like, I was like, I remember that. American Eagle, wow, still going, you know, and uh, lids, you know, all that sort of stuff. But um, we were walking from, you know, the buildings to buildings and advertised on one of the stores. I don't remember what store it was, but it was just, they paid money for this, by the way. It's a clothing store. And on it is this huge marketed banner thing that says, nothing is impossible. (laughs) I was like, it's the gap. Like, I don't understand what, (laughs) I don't understand the connection, you know? Um, So it, it just, it is a mantra that we hear and see everywhere that, oh, just nothing is impossible. And maybe it's me. Maybe it's my generation, maybe it's just life in general, maybe it's my situation, but I'm like, I don't think nothing is the right word. Are you with me on that? We've all tried things, you know, and it just, it's not working. And I think the nothing is impossible message, this sermon that we hear in various forms, it's, it, it keeps us from being at home with our limitations, it keeps us from recognizing that we're not superhuman. And humility is this guardrail against that. It's this guardrail against arrogance and pride and, um, and unbridled living. Now, the phrase that Peter uses here to humble yourself uh, under, quote, the mighty hand of God, it's a beautiful phrase. This is the only place it's used in the New Testament, by the way, but it's all... Exodus language. It's, it's used in the story of the Exodus, of God's mighty hand rescuing a people. This is about, this phrase is about uh, rescue and liberation, about God saving people from the depths of whatever. It's an attractive phrase. It doesn't read that way, because you hear mighty hand of God. It's like, I know that preacher, but 
it's not about that. It's about this God who saves. Are you with me on that? Now, for the Greek nerds in the room, the word that Peter uses here for humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, is passive, which means it's not a character trait. One of the interesting things about humility is it's hard to develop because then you become prideful that you're humble. And, but it's, more of a, it's not a character trait. It's more of a reality that covers over our human limits. It's an acceptance, really. It's this awakening of like, yeah, it's tough. And that there are times in our lives when the crises of the human experience appear too much to bear. That's the position and the posture of humility when we recognize that. And the mighty hand of God in those moments is, if we're people of faith, all we have. It is a posture before God. It is also something to keep in mind when we are prone to make for ourselves uh, success and rising and being the best. I love these words from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps, the writer says, when you enter the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice offered by fools. What is that sacrifice? Too many words. It's better to listen. Give God the first word. He goes on to say, for they do not know how to keep from doing evil. Never be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be quick to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore, let your words be what? Few. Shut up. Let God be God. Listen. Humble yourselves at the mighty hand of God. If you don't need saving, you don't need God. Clear and simple. The second thing Peter does in this beautiful set of uh, statements here is that he reminds his readers of God's promise to carry the load, however he does that. It's simple. It's profound. He says these words to them and to you and to me. Cast all your anxiety upon him. Do that. Like, whatever that is, cast that on him. Take your anxieties and cast them before the Lord. And to cast is, you know what this means, but it means to lay down, to drop, to release, to leave behind. It's kind of like forgiveness. We think forgiveness is often reconciliation with people, but we have a word for that. It's called reconciliation. Forgiveness is a whole different thing. Forgiveness is actually financial language. It's a debt that has been uh, canceled. It's, it's, it's actually the upper hand in the situation of letting go. I'm not going to let this bother me anymore. And forgiveness is a way of doing that. And casting has a similar kind of thing, just walking away. But you can't do that unless you realize that what is plaguing you, what's keeping you from whatever fullness definition we have is not attainable. So there's a sense of anxiety that grows in us. And Peter's being quite simple here. Just take those, give them to God. Jesus says something similar. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy what? Burdens, same stuff, heavy anxieties. And I will give you more to do. 
No, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And one of the most important and prominent traits of the human experience that the Bible addresses from front to back, from Genesis to maps, I mean, this is all throughout, is our tendency to try and make it entirely on our own, to be fully autonomous, self-sufficient, to believe that within ourselves we have everything we need to accomplish whatever we want. That the Bible has this attention that it gives to that tendency. I don't know if anybody's seen the most recent um, special by John Mulaney. Have you seen it? He's he's a comedian, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, It's very funny. And um, he does this one-hour special. It's an hour, about an hour and six minutes. And I thought it was going to only be like a piece of the special, but the entire, every joke, every statement, every story is about his time in rehab to rid himself of his addiction to cocaine. And you think this is not going to be funny at all, but he's a genius. Comedians can do this. But what's interesting about the special is that, and I know this from having walked with people through treatment, having walked through people through those sorts of situations, is there's, it's difficult, but one of the pathways through is a sense of admitted helplessness, you know? And he talks about that, and especially, I don't want to spoil it, but he does, the very first thing, the intervention, he's just like, no, you know? It's, it's hard, everybody gets mad at everybody. But there's a sense of admitted helplessness that is required to get through these very difficult things. Some things you just can't do on your own. I recommend watching it. There's no excuses made. There's no blame placed. It's just, it's public confession. It's very interesting. I'm getting off the subject. Okay. As a pastor, and this is all I've ever done, I see and hear about what anxieties ail people. I have them too. I just want you to know I'm not in a bubble. Uh, but the, the thing that I see a lot is the anxiety focused on the attempt at a near, I say near, near perfect life. And I say near perfect because we're not that arrogant. Maybe you are, I don't know. <laughs> Go for it. But this anxiety around getting every part of my life correct, is, is, it weighs on people. And when we project to others that they can do it, it's added weight. We're spreading the weight. But it remains true, especially here in America, which has a built-in sense of optimism. This is one of our downfalls, as well as a strength that we can and should keep improving and optimizing every area of our life. I put this in the bulletin, but it was a tweet that I came across, and it's so good. Working on your job, while working on your mental health, while working on your relationships, while working on your physical health, while working on your family, while working on your sleep habits, while working on self-care, while working on exercise, while working on personal goals, while working. 
Amen? Do you hear the theme? Keep working. Double down. Fix yourself. You can do it. But isn't it interesting that all the improvements we need in our life are dependent upon us and us alone? This reality is coming into play more and more through research and data. Um, I recently read a book by New York Times um, writer and journalist, uh, Rena Raphael. And she spent the last eight years uh, deeply involved in the wellness industry. She wanted to figure out mostly why it was affecting women the most and the negative and positive impacts. And she makes this observation about how the majority of wellness programs are about what you can do to fix your problems. And they also cost money. Problems that were, in fact, after a closer look, not always of your own doing, but the result of structures that produce stress and anxiety. Uh, I read an interview with her. I want to read you her statement here. It's powerful. Um, she writes, she's answering the question about, am I doing enough? This is the question we have when we are going through things. Well, am I doing enough to fix that? And based on her research, she writes, yeah, you always have to be doing more. The goalposts keep moving, she says. And they're often paired with precise things that you need to buy, which are generally quite expensive and cost prohibitive to most people. Often people will say to me, well, what's wrong with self-care? I thought self-care was good for us. And then she says, I don't have an issue with real self-care. The problem is the way that we're being sold self-care in ways that distort the meaning of the term. We're being told that it's all on you, the individual, to take care of yourself. And when it's all on you, the individual, that sets you up for self-blame. You're not healthy enough. You're not eating enough. You're not nutritious enough. You're not zen enough. Then it's because you did something wrong when it really could just be all these other systemic issues, right? Maybe you're stressed out because your boss emails you after 6 p.m. Maybe you have no vacation time. Maybe you didn't get any maternity benefits. We're constantly telling people to treat the symptoms, to put a Band-Aid over the seeping wound instead of actually looking at the root issues of why we're so stressed and so unwell and why we're so lonely. And that's when wellness becomes a counterproductive cycle of stress. People are veering towards wellness because they're concerned about their health, but at the same time, it's just adding more pressure, right? Is it really all on you? Everything in your life that becomes a crisis? Does every, does, do all of us have it within us to solve all those problems? No. And again, as a pastor, I see it. Parenting, work-life balance, if that's really even a thing, relationship, even faith. These can all be theaters of false perfection. And in each of those, we are often humbled because humanity is a real thing. And in the background of our lives, the Bible continues to whisper that we are not as capable as we imagine and that God is there to help in some way lift the burden. And the last thing I'll say is this. Peter's reason for saying, hey, just take your anxieties and cast them 
at the feet of God. His reason is because he cares for you. Vertically, this is of supreme importance to remember that God cares. It's a thing that we should know. Hopefully you hear that in this room. The way our services and liturgies run every Sunday, they're in place to and are designed to remind us of this. It almost doesn't matter what I say here because in a moment you'll stand in line to receive communion and you will hear the gospel that Christ gave his life for you. And as a pastor, I will say this, that knowing that God cares for you and for me is uh, not a truth that I can easily uh, prop up in my life all that well on my own. I can know it intellectually. I can point to the verses, but it's difficult to keep that going on my own, to experience and to feel it and to know it intimately. It happens in community. Move through the Bible front to back and notice how the primary way people hear and remember the loving presence of God is through conversation. It's people reminding a nation or reminding a friend or reminding a church. God is not often audible in the Bible as much as we think. It's the conversations between his people that speak his words to us. And God speaks to us very often through us. Amen? And so people can definitely reach the end of their life and know intellectually that God cares for them because it's on paper. It's in the book. But they will judge whether it's true or not based on the words and the actions of the church community around them. Right? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. Just a series of questions. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? And then he quotes the Old Testament here. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring what? Good news. What is the job of the church? There it is. The beautiful feet of people who bring good news, who remind each other, You don't have to carry this by yourself. I know you want to, but you don't have to. And we're here as a community to help, to pray with, to support, and to be of service to one another. This is our service to the Lord, that we would serve one another in his name. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. O God, the King of glory, you have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. And everyone said, Amen.